I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Uh, the title of these three messages, one that was delivered uh, last Lord's Day and then this morning and then next Lord's Day as well, is Practicing What You Preach practicing what you preach from this great text of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. You follow along as I read. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery. As you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. If you were with us last Lord's Day when we started this little mini-series practicing what you preach, you know that I mentioned that there are six character traits, six character traits that give us as believers the opportunity to live out the gospel of God. And you remember that I also said that the idea that Paul is getting across here as he's communicating the gospel to the Thessalonians is that it's not just our gospel lips giving such good news to others that is so important, but also equally important is our gospel lives, our conduct, our character. So not just gospel lips, but also living a characteristic life of glorifying God through our lives, through our gospel lives. You you might even use uh, another way of saying this, gospel words and gospel walk, or gospel conversation and gospel conduct or gospel character. The two 
go intimately together. They belong together, not just how we deliver the gospel to others, but also how we demonstrate the gospel to others in and through our lives. It's incredibly important. And that's what, in essence, Paul is talking to the Thessalonians about in these 12 verses of chapter 2. He's telling them in no unmistakable, no mistakable language that there is a duty on the part of every Christian to be that which God calls us to be. He tells us that not only are we to communicate the gospel to others, but we're supposed to live the gospel. And you remember those two first character traits that I mentioned last time, just by way of a very quick review. The first of these six traits is this. Christians must honor God in boldness because of the declared gospel. Look back at verses 1 and 2 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had been already suffering and being, uh, excuse me, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul is, in essence, saying that we have to honor God because we not only declare the gospel, not only is it for us a declared gospel through our lips, as I just mentioned, but it's also honoring God in the boldness of our life in both proclaiming and living the gospel. This is what he means by what he says here in verses 1 and 2. It is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian, not only to communicate the gospel, but to also suffer for the gospel. And this is what Paul says was his experience, along with Silvanus and Timothy and all true gospel workers. Have you notice he says here that he trusts that this laboring was not in vain, wasn't fruitless, wasn't an empty pursuit. It was going to accomplish the purposes that God had set out for this gospel to do through the lips and the lives of Paul and his ministry associates. This is why we must honor God. And when we're in much conflict, when people disagree with us, when they criticize us, when they come against us with great opposition, we honor God with our boldness. We honor God with how courageous we are. So Christians must honor God in boldness. Now, I use this word in boldness instead of with boldness because we're talking about the motivations of the heart. It's in your heart. Uh, Where's the location where boldness must be manifest first and foremost from the very start? It's in your heart. It's It's a desire in the very fabric and fiber of your being to honor God in this boldness as you declare the gospel. It starts in the location of your heart. The second character trait that we went through last time was this. Christians not only must honor God in boldness because of the declared gospel, but also Christians must please God in fidelity because 
of the entrusted gospel. Do you see that with me in verses 3 and 4 of 1 Thessalonians 2? Paul says, for our appeal does not spring, and then he gives a Pauline triad, from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Do you see that in your Bibles, those three things? Our appeal, he says, our appeal, that is our communication of the gospel, that which is on our gospel lips, does not spring from error or impurity or any tempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, and don't miss that, we are as Christians entrusted with the gospel. Not only the gospel having been communicated to us and we embrace such a gospel, but also we are to give others the gospel. We've been entrusted with it. That's why he says, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Christians, therefore, must please God, and they must please God. Where where does that motivation come from? It comes from the heart, and it must be a pleasing of God in fidelity. Now, that may not be a word that you use often. This is a word uh, with a synonym like uh, faithfulness, uh, a kind of steadfastness with regard to your trust of God and your belief in God pleasing Him in fidelity. You know, we talk about marriage fidelity. We talk about uh, financial fidelity. And this is, this is part and parcel of how we live out the gospel in a myriad of ways to others, pleasing God. And that because the gospel has been entrusted to us, not just that which we believed as we heard it with our ears, but that which affects us, which changes us, transforms us, as it has been entrusted to us. It changes our lives. It so changes our lives, Paul says, that when you hear of those who come into town, Thessalonians, and they come to you and they speak error, don't believe them. That's not the true gospel. He says, our appeal does not spring from error, nor does it spring from impurity, he says, moral impurity, sexual impurity, And nor is there any attempt, he says thirdly, to deceive. No trickery, no underhanded attempts to curry the favor of the Thessalonians uh, with impure motives, with deception, with underhanded ways. We went through all of that last time. So the idea here with these character traits, as we've started with the first two, is that you must honor God in boldness because of the declared gospel, and you must also please God in the fidelity, the faithfulness of your life because of the entrusted gospel, that which you have received. If it's a gospel that changes you, maybe there was error in your understanding of the gospel. Maybe there was impurity, and certainly there must have been morally and perhaps even sexually in your life before the gospel came to you. And deception, lying, trickery, underhanded ways, all of those things were were with the gospel, shared with you as sin, as that which God is certainly not pleased And the gospel came to these Thessalonians, and it came to you and to me, and it radically altered our lives. And even not just in the there and then, but the here and now. 
in the very trajectory of my life. I'm continuing to be changed by this entrusted gospel. I want to please God. I want to please God in the fidelity of my life. That's what we talked about last time. Uh, what about more of these Christian traits, uh, these, these uh, character responses uh, to the gospel of God? How about number three? How about number three? Christians must glorify God in integrity because of the pure gospel. That's the third in our list of six. Number three, Christians must glorify God in integrity because of the pure gospel. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Paul says, For, continuing to explain how he and his, his brothers came to them, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. And then he adds this, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you, referring, of course, to the Thessalonians, or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Now, this is, this is most interesting. This is a way for Paul to convince the Thessalonians and He says repeatedly uh, throughout this passage, as you yourselves know or as you know. Uh, They already know this, but he wants to keep emphasizing this. Why? Because it's not just about the gospel on our lips. It's the gospel in our lives. It's not just the words of the gospel. It's the walk of the gospel. It's, It's not just gospel conversation with someone that isn't backed up with a gospel conduct, a a gospel character. The two go hand in hand. And so he says to these Thessalonians, you you know this, but I want to re-emphasize this to you. I, I want you to know that this is an opportunity for you to trust not only what we're saying to you with the gospel and that you've owned such a gospel, but also look at our lives and you're to emulate these character traits. Notice this, this Pauline triad here. Uh, Again, uh, three ways in negative terms of saying this is not the way we came to you, but it's opposite. And do you notice the first one there in the first part of verse 5? For we never came with words of flattery, as you know. Flattery. What is that? Again, that's not a word that we might use very often in our conversation with others. Uh, what, what does flattery mean? Now, what does Paul mean by flattery? Here's what he means. To use flattery uh, was a, a, a device with our words uh, to gain advantage over someone by the way that you use your speech to manipulate them into giving you uh, what they have. Maybe it's their money. Maybe it's their favor. Maybe uh, it's their influence. You you want to so influence them that they see you as influential. You want to so manipulate them that possibly they'll give up their money to you. Well, there were all kinds of charlatans and, and frauds and, and phonies in the first century, and they would come into Thessalonica as well, and they'd be the latest speakers who would come through, and perhaps they might have been even very sophisticated. 
They were um, professional rhetoricians, we might say. Their their rhetoric, their oratory, uh, they would come and they would wow the crowd. And, of course, there's always a payoff somewhere. They would want you to do things for them. They would want you to give them money. They would want you to give them favors, perhaps even sexual favors, um, some kind of moral impurity. And that's why Paul said what he said in our, our last outline point, that we didn't come to you uh, with impurity. Uh, we didn't come to you with deception or error. And now he's saying, and we never came to you with words of flattery. As you know, Gene Green Uh, a commentator on this text, uh, quotes the Greek grammarian and commentator Millikan as saying this. This is a, a good definition of this idea of flattery. The word carries with it the idea of the torturous methods by which one man seeks to gain influence over another. Uh, generally for his own ends, and when we keep in view the selfish conduct of too many of the heathen rhetoricians of the day, we can easily understand how such a charge might come to be laid against the apostles. I think that's right. I think that's right on the mark. You know, the apostle Paul, even in the book of Romans, speaks of this right at the end, right at nearing the end of this epistle. In the last chapter, he says in Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out, now listen to this, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And then he commands them, avoid them. Why? Verse 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. You see, they have impure motives. Their character traits are all self-serving. And then he says this, Romans 16, 18, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. He says, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. See, an evil trait, a non-Christian trait, a wicked trait, is by smooth talk and flattery to deceive your hearers to motivate them to give you what your appetites are craving. And Paul says, we never came to you that way. That's not who we are. That's not the character trait of our life. Uh, Is this not incredibly important? It is so incredibly important. Paul doesn't even stop there with something as serious as the sin of flattery But he also says, secondly, in this Pauline triad, middle of verse 5, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Not not just the use of flattery, this sinful idea of puffing somebody up because you're trying to get what you want out of them, but also, he says, we never came with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Now, we know that word, don't we? We know very well what greed means. That's common in our culture. 
greed, while not always meaning the insatiable desire to, to gain wealth, although I think that's probably mostly what people are talking about when they use this, but it probably does mean that specifically here in 1 Thessalonians 2.5. Why? Well, because Paul appeals to God himself, the divine tester of the heart, to see if there was any greed lurking in the deep recesses of his soul. And he says, God tests our hearts. God examines us. And when he does, through his witness, there's no greed in our lives. There's no desire to fleece the flock. There's no desire to see people have their money taken away from them, to abscond with the cash, uh, with material goods. Paul was totally committed, as was Silvanus and Timothy, to being above reproach in the area of money or material goods. That was, that was their commitment. I mean, if, you, if you're going to be a person who wants to, to be honorable to God, to be pleasing to God, to be someone who very desperately wants in your life to be someone who is, as a must, glorifying God in the integrity of your heart, you can't be greedy. You can't. It's not a Christian trait. It must not characterize the life of a believer. You remember the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, some very, very important words. He's, of course, talking about his apostolic ministry. He's talking about himself, but it could very easily apply to every one of us. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now, there's that word faithful, a, a word that speaks of fidelity. Or, because of our outline point here, this third one, integrity. Integrity. This is how you glorify God. This is how a man ought to be faithful to have the integrity in his heart. So much so, God is glorified. This is is how we live and conduct ourselves because it's a, a great implication, a mighty implication about the gospel and about how people ought to receive the gospel, particularly from us, particularly from you and from me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul speaks of this integrity again. They were, they were taking uh, an offering, uh, 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 some giving, some funds, some financial goods, and Paul says in verse 19 of chapter 8, uh, but the, the faithful, talking about a particular brother, Uh, Titus and someone else who has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace. That's talking about the idea of money. They had been entrusted with not only the gospel, but with financial funds for the hurting church in Jerusalem and in other places. And so what he says is, uh, we're going to carry out this act of grace, this giving of money. So they, they had cash on them, we would say. And he says, we're going to carry out 
in 2 Corinthians 8.19, this act of grace that is being ministered by us, that is, we're going to be giving it to you for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. And then he says this, we take this course, that is this course of action, so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. He's saying, we want to be found blameless in money matters. We have others who've gathered around us. It's not just one man who who preaches and then uh, they take up an offering for him and then he takes this money and he's the only one that knows what's being done with that money. Now, Paul says, I've got trusted and entrusted brothers and, and we want to be above reproach. We don't want anybody to assume that we're going to abscond with your cash and lack integrity. No, no, not at all. What we are going to do is we as Christians are going to glorify God in our integrity because of the pure gospel. Why do I say pure gospel? Because when you you come right down to it, the purity of the gospel means that in the purity of your heart and mine, in complete integrity, we're not in this for the money. We're not in this for greediness. That's not what we're all about. Do you remember what Paul said about himself right there at the end of the book of Acts? You might turn there with me, Acts chapter 20. He's talking to the elders of the church of Ephesus uh, on the island of Miletus. He's giving them, in a sense, a, a final charge. And he begins in verse 17 to speak about this. And he says, I want you to have this sort of last will and testament, uh, my last commandments toward you. And it's a very touching scene. It's very emotional. Uh, They're hugging one another. They're hugging Paul. They don't want him to leave. And here's one of the last things he says in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 33. It almost seems to come out of the sky like a bolt of lightning. Where's he Where's he going with this? He's talking about up to that point their their characters and how they need to pay careful attention to themselves and to all the flock and and to oversee and all of these matters and that they are to, they are to be alert and then he says in verse 33 as one of the almost final comments these words Acts 20:33 I coveted no one's silver or gold, or apparel. You yourselves know, and there's that, there's that reminding again, you yourselves know that these hands, talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus, not the Thessalonians, but the Ephesians, you yourselves know that these hands, and he possibly even looked at his hands or showed them his hands, you yourselves know that these hands, with these hands of mine, they ministered to my necessities. In other words, I worked my own job. I, I paid my own way. I, 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 I could have demanded as an apostle to get my living from the gospel, but for the most part in my ministry, I chose not to do that to make sure everyone knew that I wasn't a greedy person. He says, these hands ministered to my necessities and those who were with me 
And then he says in verse 35, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. That's amazing. What a, what a commendation on the life. What a man of integrity. No wonder he says later in Acts 24, 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. I mean, that's, that's truly, according to Acts 24, what Paul thought he was doing even before he met Christ on the Damascus Road, according to Acts 9. But now, now that he has this internal motivation for the glory of God, that's why this outline point is Christians must glorify God in integrity because now the pure gospel has come to him. And when you are living a pure gospel and speaking a pure gospel, then greediness has no place. Paul didn't come into Thessalonica with flattery or a pretext for greed. And thirdly, with this negative triad, he adds, verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Oh, this is amazing. This This is truly amazing. This is why I fashioned this outline point in the way that I have. Christians must glorify God, not seek the glory of men. You see that there in verse 6? Nor did we, that is Paul and Silvanus and Timothy and these other gospel workers, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you, Thessalonians, or from others. I mean, they were going from town to town in this region of Macedonia, and they were going into the region of Achaia. And he says, we're not seeking glory from people. Whether whether it's from you or when we go to the next area, we're not going to seek glory from them. We're seeking to glorify God. That's our commitment. Is that your commitment? I mean, it's one thing to, to fight off greed and for someone to, to assume that you can fight off this greed by being a man or a woman of integrity. And that's a big battle, but that battle can be won. There can be people who push off greediness, even if that was something that they lived by before they came to Christ. And they might even say, look, I I can work my way through uh, the gospel, the pure gospel coming into my life so that I'm not speaking words of flattery. I I don't want to do that in order to influence people in the wrong way just because of the eloquence of puffing them up and uh, sounding good so that I can get them to do things that I want them to do, give me money or favors or accolades or adulation. But this particular third negative in the triad here in verse 6, that may be something different. This may be why Paul ends the triad, this negative triad, with this one. Nor did we seek glory from people. Of course, you and I know what that is. That's pride. That's arrogance. That's boastfulness. Hey, I do what I do to seek the glory from the people around me. Oh, he's so good. He's such a good speaker. 
He's so eloquent. They said about Paul in the book of Acts, oh, he speaks like a god. Paul would have none of this. He says, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but demands as an apostle, I command you to do this, or I command you to stay away from this, I'm an apostle of Christ, that doesn't mean that Paul is automatically, because he's an apostle or he mentions his apostolicity, that doesn't mean that he's seeking glory from people. Not at all. Here's his point. We do not seek the glory of man, but we do seek the glory of God, the glory of God alone. I mean, Paul and his brethren didn't come into these cities or these regions, as I've said, for the purpose of gaining glory for themselves. Far from it. Though he says, as an apostle of Christ, I I could have demanded you, Thessalonians, to pay me respect and and honor that the office of apostle deserves, that that the honor it should bear, Uh, you should respect me, Uh, you should give me all kinds of adulation, but he wants none of this honorific adulation, none at all. He's not looking for a reputation as one who's a great orator or a sophisticated rhetorician, but simply as one who's desiring to give God all the glory and take none for himself. Oh, this hits us hard, doesn't it? This is a massively important character trait, is it not? Paul could demand as an apostle. He was an apostle. He, he had seen the loving, living Christ on the road to Damascus. He was, he was thrown down on that road. Christ revealed himself to him. And, and, and Jesus talked to him. Jesus gave him revelations. He, he spoke to him as one man speaks to another. Paul could have been so puffed up. In fact, he even says, doesn't he, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that the Lord gave me a thorn in my flesh so that I wouldn't be conceited. And he asked the Lord three times to take it away because it was a painful thing, whatever it was, a a person or uh, some kind of uh, physical uh, issue. We don't know. But we do know this. Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong when I'm relying on Christ and not myself, when I want to give Him glory and not try to gain glory for myself, then I'm realizing I don't seek the glory of people. I'm truly seeking the glory of God. That's the integrity of my heart. He says in chapter 4, as I quoted it earlier, this is how one should regard us as slaves of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. To have integrity, integrity of heart. Paul was a a man of great integrity, and he desired nothing other than to glorify God and not himself. That's what the pure gospel demands, my friend, a life of, of integrity. Who are you when no one else is looking? What are you doing when no one else is at home? What's your life like when when the pure gospel is at stake? You might think you can fool others by 
what you're doing in private, whether it's your thought life or whether it's something that you're actually doing with your life, your body, uh, your eyes, your ears, your, your arms, your legs. We don't know what you may be doing, but God knows. God knows the heart. And Paul says the pure gospel demands a life of integrity because the purity of the gospel is at stake in what we preach. That's, that's clear. That is very clear. How about you? Is the purity of the gospel at stake in your life when we look at the purity of the way you're living or perhaps the impurity of it? Are you glorifying God in integrity because of the pure gospel? This is, this is about as important as it gets, my friend. It's that gospel lips, gospel lives scenario. It's that gospel words, gospel walk scenario. It's that gospel conversation and gospel conduct scenario. So important. Critical, these traits. You must honor God then, number one, in boldness because of the declared gospel. Number two, you must please God in fidelity because of the entrusted gospel. You must glorify God in integrity because of the pure gospel. And number four for this morning as we close, Christmas, uh, Christians must trust God in work because of the adorned gospel. We're going to spend a little time on this number four before we close because this too is incredibly essential for the Christian character trait of your life and mine. Christians must trust God in work because of the adorned gospel. Look at verses 9 and 10. I'm going to skip over uh, verses 7 and 8 for the moment because I really think I want to make sure that that's connected with verses 11 and 12. So skip over verses 7 and 8 and go to verses 9 and 10 of 1 Thessalonians 2. Here's what Paul says. For you remember, and there he goes again with this idea of for you know, or God is witness, uh, he knows, you know. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Oh, this is essential. Christians must trust God in work, in their work, in their labor. Why? Because it's a way to adorn the gospel. When you work, it's like you're putting on gospel clothes. The way you labor, the way you toil, your work is a reflection of the adornment of the gospel. It's like you're wearing the gospel as your clothing. It's as though you're adorning the gospel with your hands and with your feet and how you work, how you work in your job. This is incredible. I, I, I say in this outline point that it is an adorning of the gospel because of, of three main things. Let me just share these with you. Number one, number one, this is, I try, I'm going to try to be very, very practical with you. Number one, 
because of what Paul says here in verse 9 about how he and his associates worked night and day so as not to be a burden to these Thessalonians, it was so because the gospel of God was being proclaimed, but it was also how the gospel was being lived out in their vocation, in their work, in their labor. That is to say, when you don't want to make anyone believe that your gospel ministry is all about actually fleecing people out of their money for your own sordid gain, and we just talked about that in the last outline point, you want to trust God for your livelihood. That's what he's, that's what he's saying, my friends. You want to trust God with your livelihood. You, you, you trust God for your work. Because in your work, when people are seeing you labor, you're adorning the gospel, not only by your lips, but by your life. I mean, do you remember from that set of previous verses in the last outline point that we're really talking about Paul not being tied to greed? He's not tied to that. He's not tied to that at all. That's not his heart. He and his associates rather would trust God by working and making their own living because it gives them a platform to adorn this precious gospel of ours with good old-fashioned hard work. So I, I ask you and I ask myself, do I work hard? Do I labor for, for Christ? Because I know that when people, seeing, when people see my hard work and they hear me say I'm a Christian, then they're seeing Christianity lived out in my work life. That's what he's saying. I'm not, I'm not so greedy that I come into town and I give you sophisticated rhetoric and uh, flowery uh, uh, oratory and I expect you to support me in all and every way. He says, if in fact that's a stumbling block to anybody, I won't do it. I won't do it. And you know, The reason I think Paul is giving us this idea in verses 9 and 10 is that there must have been an issue about this matter of working in the Thessalonian church of which Paul will later talk to them in 2 Thessalonians. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning with verse 6. Now, there's a problem with idleness idleness or being unruly. And apparently this unruliness or this idleness, depending on your English Bible translation, has to do with this idea of work. There's a problem in Thessalonica. And Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, now we command you. Now, if you take that back to the idea, yeah, we could have made demands of you as an apostle of Christ, uh, but we, 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 we don't want to do that because we don't want to seek glory from you or from others, but we only want to seek glory from God, well, now you can see apostolically he is commanding them, not for the sake of his own glory, but he sees a problem. And he wants to address the problem. And so he does here in chapter 3, verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ is watching. He's witnessing to this. He sees what's happening. He's He's the Lord of the church. 
And then here's what he's commanding them, that you keep away from any brother, that is brother or sister, of course, who is walking in idleness. Uh, Your translation may say, who's unruly. But I like the idea of idleness here because he says it is not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. How so, Paul? Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day. You see those three words? Toil, labor, worked. With toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Doesn't that adorn the gospel? Absolutely. No expectations. Uh, no, uh, no potential sin of greed could be levied against him. Verse 9, it was not because we do not have that right that's why he says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9, uh, if a, a preacher of the gospel is preaching the true gospel, then he ought to get his living from the gospel. But if I perceive this to be a problem, I won't take it because I don't want anybody to think that I'm in this thing for the money. I don't want anyone to think that vocationally I do what I do because I've got a greedy heart and I'll use ministry purposes for such greed. Not at all. He says it was not because, in verse 9 here of 2 Thessalonians 3, that we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. And here's the command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear. So there is a problem. Verse 11 says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work. Can this be any clearer? And then he says, Well, what are you doing if you're idle and you're not working? He says, Being busybodies, gossipers, talkers, people who talk a lot and don't do a lot. He says, verse 12, Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And this is serious business now because verse 13 says, As for you, brothers, do not go grow weary in doing good. Look, it's hard work. You're going to grow weary. You're going to work yourself to the bone. Verse 14, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter... And that's, of course, the totality of the letter. But in the context, certainly this idea of being idle, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that he may be ashamed. He says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. In other words, brother, if you're not working, if you're going from house to house or sister, if you're not working in your home and, and doing what you must do in that home, If you're going from house to house, and if you're rather being a busybody, you're being idle, that's that's the unruly sin of a lack of work, a lack of industry, a lack of, of paying for things that people are giving you. Paul says, I didn't I didn't ever take any bread from anybody without paying for it. So this is This is part and parcel of what it means to adorn the gospel. It's not just 
what you say, but it's how you live. And I think there's a second reason here that prompts me to use this word, the adorned gospel. And that's because of how Paul and those around him actually enjoyed and embraced the adorned work and labor of their hands so as not to distract from the proclamation of the gospel. You can actually see this with yet another Pauline triad. Can you believe there's another triad of words here in our verses, verses 1 to 12, kind of the third in our list already? And here's what he says. It is it is absolutely the case that what we've been involved with, and he uses three words to describe it, labor, toil, and work, just like we saw in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Labor, what does that mean? That means to work. You don't have to have a, a Greek scholarship to study what labor means. It means to work. In fact, the, the word kapos uh, is working to the point of exhaustion. Kapiao, to, to work, to, to labor, to, to do what you're supposed to do and to work hard. Why? Because God is witness. I mean, isn't that what Paul is saying here? He says, you are witnesses and God also. This is how you have to do it, folks. This is a labor. And in this case, when you have the opportunity to show by the witness of your very life the adorned gospel, then you ought to do so in your home, of course, and the industry there, and also in your job, in your vocation, how you make your money, how you bring bread home to the table. Now, of course, I know there are retired persons. I know there are those who physically are unable because of their, their physical issues of life that may not be able to work, but we're talking not in the case of every single person without distinction, but we're talking generally here. It's the idea of laboring. It's a, it's a labor of love because you want people to see your labor and adorn the gospel as you've adorned it. And he says, secondly here, toil, makthan. It's a, it's a word that's very much like the word for labor, kapan, but makthan is the idea of, of a toil, a, a, a working. In fact, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 27, it uses this same idea. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That's what Paul is describing when he describes himself. And he says, in toil and hardship. Similar words, same words that he uses here. And remember I quoted in passing a moment ago, 1 Corinthians 9, about the Apostle Paul and and, uh, this idea that if someone was going to stumble over uh, supporting him as a gospel minister, this is what's said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. He says, yes, it is written for our sake because the plowman 
should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Look, if we, if we have adorned the gospel and we preach the gospel to you and you've received the gospel, uh, shouldn't there be some kind of uh, financial uh, remuneration Uh, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Because Paul was the one who brought the gospel to him, uh, to them, the, the Corinthians. He says, nevertheless, nevertheless, verse 12, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. See, we don't want to make this an issue. We don't want to make this an obstacle, a roadblock. If someone is struggling with this because they, they think our motives are impure, then we'll just work with our own hands. He says in verse 13, verse 13, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Yes, that's the way it was in the Old Covenant. And in verse 14, he says uh, here in 1 Corinthians 9, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. I, I have that right, but I'm not going to take that right. He says in verse 15, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. I'm not asking you for money. For I would rather die, he says, than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. What is his ground for boasting? I'm going to preach the gospel, and if I don't even get compensated for it, I'm still going to preach the gospel. Woe is me, he says in verse 16, if I do not preach the gospel. I've got a reward. It may not be with your money compensating me for preaching the gospel to you. The Lord will reward me, and the Lord will give me the compensation I need if I need to work with my own hands so as not to be a stumbling block put in your way. This is amazing. So that's why he says here in chapter 2, Verses 9 and 10, we worked. For you remember, brothers, our labor, our labor and toil, we worked. And, and when did they work? He says, we worked night and day. That is, we worked during the day, and if need be, we worked in the evening, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. I suppose he says, while we proclaim the gospel of God, because while they were working with their hands. Paul was a leather worker. He, he, he took a leather patches and he sewed them together uh, to make tents and, and uh, coverings for clothing. And uh, when he was working with his hands, he was working with Thessalonians in the shop. And while he was working, he would also proclaim to them the gospel. And he says very clearly in verse 10, you are witnesses and God also. And then, believe it or not, here's another triad. He says, you're witnesses and God is too. How? One, holy. Two, righteous. Three, blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Another triad. What does he mean by holy? That means holy conduct. 
Hosios. It's how people conform their lives to the right standard of God's own character and law. That's what it means. He says we were holy. We had holy conduct when you saw us, when we were working with our own hands and while working as we proclaimed the gospel. And then he says righteous. Not just holy, but secondly, righteous. Righteous conduct. Dikaios. It it means they were upright or pious. Now again, uh, that word pious has a very negative connotation in our, our culture, you know. Oh, so you're one of those pious Christians. People use it as a epithet. They use it as a sort of a, a, a curse word of sorts. Oh, oh, so you're Mr. Pious. You, you're Mrs. Pious. Well, righteousness, right standing before God because of our justification and right conduct before God and men in our sanctification. Yeah, yeah, we, we endeavor to be upright. We endeavor to be holy and upright and pious. And then thirdly, blameless. Blameless. Amemptos. That means that no one could take a charge, attach it to their life, and make it stick. No, no greed, no error, no impurity, no unrighteousness or unholiness that could render me as not above reproach. I mean, Paul and his brother pastors were exemplary models and examples for these Thessalonians who, as new believers themselves, saw the lives of these brothers and then they became themselves models all around Macedonia and Achaia. This, my friends, is what discipleship is all about, isn't it? And... and This is how you adorn the gospel. And you know, there's another reason why I use that word or phrase, adorn the gospel. It's in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And it's talking about work. And here's what it says. Bond servants or bond slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. I, I believe we can translate this in the 21st century to the idea of our work, our labor, our toil, our jobs, our vocations. And then he says, does Paul to Titus, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So that they would be saved, that they would, they would adorn the gospel of God. This is our, this is our discipleship, my friends. This is 2 Timothy 2 too, isn't it? And the things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these things entrust to others who will entrust to others who will entrust to others. Oh, this issue of our work. And, and yes, that's why I've outlined this. You've got to trust God with it. You've got to trust God. Even the preacher has to trust God with his income, with his, with his remuneration. You've got to trust God. Maybe in some context preacher has to be bivocational. He can't, he can't 
make his complete living by, by the gospel. And, and these men work hard. They work hard at their studies. They work hard at their work, their vocation. They're bivocational. They have to work two jobs. They get their living from the gospel maybe to some degree or maybe even to a lesser degree getting their remuneration from the gospel and much or most of their remuneration from their work. But they're doing both and they ought to be commended. And so ought all Christians be commended by trusting God in your work because you want to see people viewing your work so that they too may adorn the gospel. Oh, my dear friends, as we close this morning, Christians must honor God in boldness because of the declared gospel, please God in fidelity because of the entrusted gospel, glorify God in integrity because of the pure gospel, and trust God in your work because of the adorned gospel. These are great character traits. And you know what? We all preach a better message than we live. These are things that have to be true of us to be sure, but maybe these things are relatively untrue of us in some parts. And it's so convicting, isn't it? Do you you honor God? Do you please God? Do you glorify God? Do you trust God? Do you do it with boldness in, in, in fidelity, in integrity, in work? because of the declared, entrusted, pure, adorned gospel. These are traits to emulate to the glory of God for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we close this message of our day, we, we just want to come before you and confess that we while we may be striving for such things, we fall so far short. We want to honor God. We want to please you. We want to glorify you. We want to trust you. We want to do it in the the very place of our heart because it's the motivation for boldness and fidelity and integrity and work. It starts in the heart. And we want to represent the gospel well, not only by our words, but by our walk. Not only by our conversation, but by our conduct. And we we fall so far short. God, please, in an effort to honor and please and glorify and trust you with these character traits, work your work of grace in our souls so that we would do these things for the sake of of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.